High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready to monitor some trends. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. What are the latest drug trends in youth? Do all kids use drugs? One of our national surveys on youth trends is called Monitoring the Future. Monitoring the Future has a 48-year history of surveying drug trends in high school kids. This last year, in 2022, they surveyed 9,599, that's one short of 9,600, 8th, 10th, and 12th graders in 102 schools. They noticed the top three drugs for youth were alcohol, cannabis, and vaping of nicotine. In 2022, 52% of 12th graders drank alcohol in the past year. 31% of them used cannabis and 27% of them vaped. In comparison to pre-pandemic years, cannabis and nicotine use decreased slightly while alcohol use increased. The data, however, looks at the cup half empty. Doom and gloom for youth drug use, all kids using drugs. However, most kids did not vape and did not use cannabis, and a nice half did not use alcohol. Promoting these positive social norms is being promoted to decrease youth drug use. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Thank you for taking my question, Dr. Lev. I really appreciate hearing from your guests and the open-minded way that you approach the challenges in addiction medicine and public health today. My name is Janet and I am a co-founder of Safe Launch, an organization whose mission is to prevent adolescent substance use. Because of the developing brain's unique susceptibility to chemical addiction, we promote the Institute for Behavior and Health's One Choice Initiative, no use of any substance before the brain has reached maturity. Having open communication about any topic is crucial to raising healthy children. But we live in a brave new world where hundreds of companies are flooding the market with addictive products that mimic candy, cookies, and soda that target the youth market to make them customers for life. Knowing this, what should parents, educators, and society do to ensure that youth with developing brains don't ingest them? Thank you. Thank you, Janet, for your very important question and for your support over the years and your important work, thank you, with Safe Launch and asking the question, what works and what doesn't work in reaching kids and motivating behavior is very important. In order to answer your question, I reached out to a psychiatrist who works with youth and young adults. Dr. Sid Puri is a psychiatrist who specializes in child, adolescence, and addiction. He is the Associate Medical Director of Prevention at the Division of Substance Abuse Prevention and Control at the Los Angeles Department of Public Health and attending on the Addiction Consult Service at Los Angeles County USC Hospital. To learn more about Dr. Sid Puri, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Sid Puri, welcome to High Truths. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I'm excited to have you too. Um, Dr. Puri, tell us about yourself. Why you're a doctor? Why did you choose psychiatry, not like emergency medicine like me? Why children and why addiction? How did that come about? It's a really good story. So 
a little bit about me. So currently I'm the Associate Medical Director of Prevention at the LA County Department Division of Substance Abuse Prevention and Control, really long title. Um, but I came to medicine through a very kind of circuitous route. I was actually initially interested in art and art history and worked as a sculptor and then doing research on performance art and worked with a bunch of transgender communities in India around HIV education through performance art. And while I was doing that as an art historian, I was writing plays that they were performing that were really based around how we educate other members in our community about using condoms, using clean needles, talking to partners about things like STIs. And I saw that so many of the community members I was working with were suffering from HIV, STIs, and other bloodborne illnesses, and I wasn't able to do anything about it. And that actually made me really frustrated because we would try to take them to doctors. There was so much stigma facing the community in India back in the early 2000s, and, and there still is, that I would have these conversations with people and my parents, who always wanted me, me, me to be a doctor, they were like, well, put your money where your mouth is and become a doctor and then help the people that you actually want to help. And so um, I came back to the US, did all of those science courses that, you know, <laughs> make you reconsider all of your life choices. And um, <laughs> by like a, a, every streak of, a streak of luck, got into medical school. And throughout medical, medical school, I actually thought I would go into some surgical subspecialty or emergency medicine. I was really interested in kind of like chaos and the madness of the OR and really enjoyed those moments. But throughout medical school, I, I really kind of took a liking to the narrative of people's health and trying to understand their behaviors in a way that impacted not only their mental health, but their physical health and ways in which their environment and other structural factors impacted their health. And so what I enjoyed about it was when I started psychiatry, it was actually right after my surgery rotation. And, you know, in surgery, you're, you're invasive in a very physical way. You're in a person's body and you're, you're doing it, you know, they're asleep and you're working on their body in ways that you're hoping will, you know, reduce illness, prevent illness, cure something that they're struggling with. And I noticed in psychiatry, we are just as invasive in different ways. And so getting into someone's brain and asking them about, traumatic experiences or their experience of things like depression or anxiety, finding out kind of the way they think about themselves and how all of that impacts the way they act and then the way they feel and then the way they you know behave and then all of the other health components of their lives was fascinating to me. And it was like you in psychiatry are kind of on this journey with them together and you really work in partnership with them. And I really enjoyed that aspect of medicine and um, partnering with patients in that way. I, after I um, started psychiatry residency, um, I think I'd always been interested in working with adolescents. I feel like they're a population that, you know, sees through smoke and mirrors. They're, they're very much like about being blunt. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed kind of not having to sugarcoat things and being very blunt and, you know, calling each other out during these sessions. And so I thought that, you know, I really fit in with that population, kind of how they think and relate. Um, and, you know, many of my patients when I was training at UCLA were struggling with substance use disorder. And so in kind of like trying to figure out how we treat youth with substance use disorders, um, there weren't a lot of people doing that. And so again, my advisors were like, put your money where your mouth is and get that additional training in addiction so that you can provide those services and then teach. Because I think another part of what we do in medicine is not only provide direct care, but make sure the, the future generations are going to be you know, taking care of us, basically. <laughs> and so we want to make sure they're well-trained and they know how to do everything we know how to do and hopefully better. And so I, you know, I ended up doing both fellowships in child and adolescent psychiatry and then addiction psychiatry. Um, Currently, I, you know, run the um, the harm reduction and prevention unit for LA County under um, my medical director, Brian Hurley, who's a wonderful human being. And, and shout out to him. We have a show. We had a podcast with him and, and he introduced me to you. So wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Um, and prior to coming to this, I, I was actually running the inpatient adolescent unit at um, LA County USC and helped develop an addiction consult service there as well for the county. Um, and what I was seeing there was um, 
how systems need to improve both access and quality of care, especially to our most vulnerable adolescents in the community. And so coming over to the Department of Public Health has really given me the, that opportunity to work closely with you know, multiple treatment and prevention providers. And I do kind of like direct training with our harm reduction units in LA County and with schools and community-based organizations working with youth. And so I've, I've tried to kind of like piece together the parts of medicine that I really love, which include teaching, um, trying to make changes on a systems level to access care, um, and then do direct patient care when I can. That is great. That's interesting. I love the the person who became a sculptor and talking to you to being a psychiatrist. And I haven't heard that analogy of being invasive, but you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, there, there is that being invasive of your of your personal history, um, totally right. Which is is harder actually to cut through than a surgeon. So oh God, it's so hard, that. right? Because I mean, like you know, we build rapport with patients, and I, I think of it like peeling an onion, right? The first time I meet a patient maybe they'll tell me one thing that's actually really, really salient for me to know about them. And the more I spend time with them, the more we peel the onion, the more I start to understand or see patterns in their behavior or wonder and you know pose questions to them about, I'm wondering if you're noticing these patterns and how you think that affects you and what you would like. Because I think the, you know, the thing in psychiatry is it's also very patient driven. And so you know we don't have blood tests or scans or any kind of metric like that that can show me how profound someone's depression is or how profound their substance use disorder is. So it's really about creating that safe environment where you're meeting them where they are and seeing what their goals are and helping them work towards those goals. Yeah. So uh, Janet Rouse is uh, working in youth drug prevention. She has a program called Safe Launch. It's kind of really cool with an airplane. She works out of a hangar and gets kids to to see the the plane and uses that as a a tool for prevention. But she asks, what is the best way to reaching youth about drugs? Really good question. So One thing I like to talk about with all my patients is that I feel like prevention begins at birth and probably even before then. We know that with substance use disorders, there's a highly genetic component to it. So just looking at other chronic medical conditions like diabetes, asthma, hypertension, we know that there's a really large genetic component to it. 50 to 70% are predisposing people to these chronic medical illnesses in the same way that substance use has that same genetic component. So when we start talking about how do we talk about youth, about substances in general, we need to start thinking about it as how do we talk to our kids who are about to be born, who are learning how to walk? How do we start folding in discussions around things as basic as like what a medication is, what you put in your body is meant for you only and is prescribed by a doctor or a pharmacist and given to you by your parent or by your guardian so that early on these conversations really stay with the kids. So they know that something that I put in my body is meant for me only. I'm not going to take a medication that's meant for someone else because that may not be the right medication for me. I may have an allergic reaction to it. It may do something completely different for me. My brain is different. And so how I react to medications or my propensity for something like an addiction disorder is very different than someone else. So I would suggest like, as we start talking about safety and body safety with kids, we start talking about why medications are really important. I think having that foundation for kids in elementary school will make it so much easier than when we talk about illicit substances to transition to, remember how we talked about medications are something you put in your body that are specific for you, given to you by a physician or doctor or pharmacist. Let's talk about illicit things and things that you may wanna experiment with your friends and why those can also harm your body or may not be right for your body. The thing that I would also emphasize with youth, though, is that they're in a point in their life where they they want to explore. We know that risk-taking and impulsivity are hallmarks of adolescence. The frontal lobe of their brain that controls executive function and decision-making and insight isn't really formed, right? And we all have experiences as adolescents doing something risky and being like, ah, I should have thought about that differently. So taking that into account also and being like, 
I don't want to tell you, you can't do something because we know kids are going to experiment. We know they're curious, but I want to have a conversation with you to make sure a, you know what you're doing, B, you know what it can do to you and see if you're doing something because you want to feel something different or you're trying not to feel something. Let's talk about that because there could be a safer and healthier way for you to manage that feeling. Those are the ways that I think kind of like substance use treatment needs to needs to shift in our country. I, you know, and I and I know that like doctors can't do that alone, providers can't do that alone. We need buy-in from parents, from guardians, from schools. This really has to be kind of a, a movement from within the community to shift how we talk about drugs and substances to make effective change for for the younger generations. Right. And I love how you say um prevention starts at birth. I haven't heard that before, but I like, I like that. And, and it's true. It's, you know, showing a good example, um, from, and I could think of more like tobacco, even little kids. I remember when my kids were little, I'd say, you know, that person's smoking. It's not nice. I mean, that, that person's okay, but that, that's kind of, you know, like, you know, that goes in their head. That's not, that's not a good thing. Right. And, and, and just like you said, modeling, because the other thing I tell my parents or the, the parents of my patients is like, kids will not do what you say. They will do what you do. So if like you're saying, don't do all of that risky, impulsive stuff, and they found out you did something like that, all of a sudden your clout is really diminished. So having the conversation being like, you know, when I was 16, I experimented with drinking with my friends because of X, Y, and Z, and I felt A, B, and C, and the consequences were good in this way, bad in this way. Like having those open, honest conversations will get you so much further with youth than being like, don't do that. Right. Because I mean, even with me, when someone says don't do something, I immediately get defensive and I'm like, well, the fact I that you don't want to do it. Right. I want to do it. Exactly. Exactly. I want to figure out what, like, what why all not? the pizzazz is about. <laughs> so I do think modeling is a really important aspect. of yeah. Or if you know, parents aren't perfect too. Parents were kids yeah. as well. Um, and fortunately, very sadly, the mistakes our generation of kids are making can be deadly. One pill, one death that we didn't have that when I was a kid. Um, it was much more forgiving. So I, I would think that's all quite to say, well, I made a mistake and this is why I made a mistake. Like, yeah. It's you true. Know, and I, I did and this like, and it was wrong. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the, that's a really important point to remember too, is that parents aren't perfect and don't try to be perfect for your child because the minute then you're not perfect, all of a sudden the identity that your child has created for you is fractured in a way that you need to rebuild. And so starting out with like, everyone is human has made mistakes and I'm open to talking about my mistakes. The other part though, like you've just said though, I think we're, we're in a time where the it's the end of casual drug use for adolescents because we know that fentanyl has infiltrated most of the illicit drug market throughout the US. We know, you know, in, in Los Angeles County, fentanyl deaths were up by 1,280% in the last four years. We've seen spikes in adolescents that are very frightening. We've had adolescents overdose and die on high school campuses. And so kids who are experimenting with their friends to do like Xanax or MDMA or counterfeit Percocet are now being met with death because there's fentanyl in these pills. Whereas in the nineties, the eighties and the seventies, when people were experimenting, that wasn't something that wasn't, you know, in their landscape. And now it's, it's just a much more dangerous game. Like it's Russian roulette, but all of a sudden it's like five of the six bullets are full. Yeah. Yeah. It's very scary. Um, scare tactics. They say, oh, remember the D.A.R.E. program of the 19, what was it, 70s, 80s, 90s? Like, that was yeah. such bad. That was bad. You know, that got a bad reputation. And, and now it makes it seem like, oh, you can't say anything bad. But yet, people are dying of fentanyl, right, at record levels. Um, and, and it's deadly. That's not scare tactics. Just that's data, truth. It's how, fact. How, exactly. how, yeah. How do you express that? It's a really good question. So, when we had um, a recent overdose of an LA County adolescent in a high school, we actually went to our adolescent provider support groups being like, we don't want to have a campaign that's like, just say no, or, you know, this is your brain on drugs. Because 
as a teenager, I laughed at those campaigns. I thought they were so silly. I wore my dare shirt ironically. I didn't think that it was effective at all. I hated being lectured by like law enforcement about drugs. And so we went to the the adolescents because I was like, I think the only way a campaign is going to be really reflective of the population you're trying to reach is if you get champions within that population to be like, these are the messages that would actually resonate with us. We learned that short, um, short like uh, sentences, you know, creative graphics, things that could easily be translated on TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat by people who had influence. So it wasn't even just that like, I was saying, or their best friends were saying like, you know, one pill can kill, but it's coming from like a TikTok influencer. It's coming from someone who like, they watch their video games on YouTube or someone who has some sort of social clout. All of a sudden, those are actually making more of a weighted impact on how adolescents view this. So it was interesting because like the the themes that were coming out of these, um, these groups were similar. They were like, we want to know that one pill can kill or that you know, friends watch out for friends, you know, friends remind friends that fentanyl is in everything right now and we need to be safe. So like the thematically it was, it was similar, but it was coming from people within the population that they respected a little more than say the old doctors or even like their parents. Interesting. So were you able to get some celebrities into your campaign? We are still trying. And if there's a celebrity out there that would love to join us, we welcome, um, we welcome that. Okay. We need to go out after them. The the other thing that I'm kind of learning about more this year is a whole concept of social norms and preventive science. And I don't know if you've implemented that into your your messaging. Um, I'm going to have several podcasts on on that uh, so I could learn and and teach my audience. Um, Social norms is if you look at the recent monitoring the future data, it'll show that you know, 31% of all 12th graders use marijuana. And you could think, oh my God, you know, world's going to pot. Or you could say 70% of kids don't use marijuana. That's the norm. Exactly. And that's it's, actually- It's, it's not, you know, change the picture. Most people don't die of fentanyl and don't use fentanyl. Right. Most people yeah. don't use marijuana. Most kids, high school kids don't use drugs. I know it seems to you like, oh, everyone's using drugs, but that's actually right. not not true. And that's actually been an important thing that we talk about in our messaging. And we do a lot of youth facing groups on how to talk to your friends about substances with like a a group in LA called the youth ambassadors who go out to schools who are adolescents themselves and kind of like take on these public health messages. And that's one of the things we talk about is that when we say you may be peer pressured to like use substances, having a remark like, but most people actually don't is an effective message and is a really way, a good way of like knowing your no and knowing kind of like how you would respond to that. So I do think it's important. I think it's important that people remember the world is not going to pot. Not everyone is dying of fentanyl, but the fact that we're seeing so many overdose deaths because of fentanyl is what's scary about it. So even though people aren't using a lot of fentanyl, the ones who accidentally are that are dying are making the news. And I think it's, I think it's still an, I mean, it's obviously still an important message to get out there that fentanyl is out there and fentanyl is being, you know, you know, mixed and laced and all the other counterfeit pills that kids are trying to use. Um, but it's interesting because you look at like trends and, you know, after the pandemic, we saw a decrease, decrease rates of things like opioid stimulant, even, um, alcohol use disorder in kids. We saw kind of like maybe stabilizing or little bumps in like nicotine and, and a little actually lower in cannabis as well. And so I'm, I'm curious to see if those trends will continue now that we're post pandemic. I think during the pandemic, it was obviously a lot harder for kids to get anything. And so what they had was essentially what their parents had at home, which is, you know, alcohol, maybe some cannabis and maybe some nicotine. And, you know, we did see bumps in alcohol use disorder in adults. And in the ER, we saw a lot more of people relapsing on substances that they had been, um, you know, abstaining from for a long time too. So I'm interested to see how this data shakes out, but you're right. Not everyone is using, and that's something to import. It's important to remember that. And using that data to be like, if you're using, you're you're not in the norm. You're still in a minority of the population. And I'm, and to ask yourself like, you know, or for your parents or your provider to be like, what are you getting out of the substance? Like, what is this doing for you? It's obviously doing something for you. So 
And that's like, that's again, the part I love about psychiatry and addiction is really understanding a motive, motivation around using a substance. What hole are you filling with that? Totally, exactly. Right. Like, is it, you know, and I go back to this a lot is like, what are you trying to feel versus like, what are you trying not to feel? And really understanding that and have, and like pushing that back on patients, I think has been a really effective way for them to understand their own motivations around something. You know, when patients come to us, they're often in a place where they're like, I want to stop or decrease my use or use more safely in some way. One question I, I like to ask patients is like, how much longer are you, do you see yourself using X? And oftentimes they, they kind of get like, caught in their tracks and they're like, oh, well, I, I guess I, I, I want to stop tomorrow or I want to stop today, but that's not going to happen. And asking them really kind of like in an authentic way, what their goals are with this substance can be really helpful and in, in teasing out then like what treatment looks like for them. Interesting. Interesting. I, um, thinking of how it would work in the emergency department, like, you know, for, for alcohol, I think people may be able to express, but I've had um, people, you know, with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome who have like obviously having terrible disease and feeling horrible in the emergency department and how am I going to mo motivate them to realize that there's a connection there that, um, yeah. and that could be difficult. It is. I think it's, it's so, I think difficult to also have those like motivational interviewing sessions when someone's symptomatic with like, either immediately right after an overdose or if mm -hmm. they're in like a really uncomfortable withdrawal or another side effect from a substance to be like, tell me about what are pros and cons about using. And they're yeah. like, I hate you. <laughs> Leave me alone. I want to hit you. And so it's right. really about like, building, again, building you're, that you're right. I think I just, what I do is I just, cause you're right. I got to get the, you know, the scrumming to stop and just make you feel better. And, yeah. but I also don't want to just walk away because here's an, here's an opportunity. And I think most, a lot of doctors just walk away and, and ignore the difficult subject. So I don't want to do that. I want to put a seed in your head for your next time so that, you know, how to protect yourself, you know, just so, you know, read about it for yourself. Don't take it from me. Um, you know, look up scrometing. Or if you're going to, I usually ask, um, do you ever have withdrawal symptoms? Oh, no, no, I could quit anytime. I said, well, just in case you do know that, um, it's, it doesn't, it's not like opioids or alcohol. It's more like insomnia, a headache, um, you know, anxiety, and that's for two weeks. And then they listen because, you know, because they, they probably relate to that and hopefully put it in their mind that, you know, put the seed, plant the seed. Yeah. One thing that I like to use in the, in the patients I, that I see in the ER, and these are kind of like the one-off addiction consults when they're like, I'm ready to quit. And I'm like, awesome. On a scale of like one to 10, 10 being like, I have a plan. One being like, I don't really want to quit at all. Where are you? And they'll say like, oh, I'm at like a seven. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Why didn't you choose like a four? And so they're like, oh, I'm, I'm ready because, and then they'll actually list out reasons for you. And then it's such a great moment where you can reflect back on those reasons. You can be like, oh, well, Sid, you just said, you know, you're ready to quit because you want to have a better relationship with your family. You don't want to get another DUI and you don't like feeling shaky when you don't drink and like having them hear their own words and oftentimes their own reasons and motivations for change starts that conversation out. And it's such a, it's, it's nice when it actually happens. And I think, you know, in the ER, it's so hit and miss because you get people who are like, make me feel better. And I want to leave immediately. And then you get people who are a little softer in their place of kind of interest and motivation. Right. And I think it, it depends on your approach. If I, as I've improved my own approach, I get a better response um, yes. to at least hearing that. Um, yeah. When, when I worked at ONDCP, I kind of worked to make sure our federal partners don't use the word adolescent because it's used so commonly. And the reason is, um, if you talk to a high school student, they're like, I'm not an adolescent. I'm like driving a car. I'm not an adolescent. But it's like, wait, but your brain's not done growing. So I try to use the word kids and young adults so that I capture that, you know, that college age kids who yeah. need that message and high school, where if you say the word adolescent, it's like, you know, that's that's like little kids. That's not me. What do that you is think? a very good point, actually. And I am just so commonly using adolescents because I think I'm doing a lot of work with in the high school range. But I think using words like youth and young adults would probably give them that sense of importance that so many of them also want and also to be taken seriously, right? Because we're not taking 
teens seriously, we're not taking adolescents seriously, but youth and young adults, I think gives them um, more of a, a foundation to feel like they have agency. So that, that, that's actually something that I should start doing. Cool. Um, what about, you said that you, you're looking at drug trends. The one that's most alarming is the vaping um, that, that's uh, uh, most prevalent. And so what do, what are those drug trends um, tell you when you're looking at data and also when you're dealing with patients? Yeah. So, I th- you know, you mentioned monitoring the future, which is wonderful. It's kind of our national data on youth um, youth and young adult trends in substance use. Mm-hmm. And it comes out annually and, it, you know, they're, they're calling youth and figuring out what people are using. Um, they do it a lot through school-based um, interventions and interviews as well. And so, yeah, after the pandemic, we did see kind of like drops in opioid stimulants, cannabis, and we saw drops in a little bit of alcohol as well. And nicotine is again, still creeping up there and vaping is still very much out there. And I think, um, you know, it's it's hard when I talk to the youth and young adults that I work with about vaping, they're like, but what, really what's wrong with it? And, you know, a couple of years ago we had the, oh God, I can't remember the, remember the acronym for it, but it was the- um, E-Valley. Yeah, exactly. Yes. The like ARDS, like lung syndrome from vaping. And after that happened and youth knew about it, maybe there were like people who took a second at least before they started vaping. No, CDC was on it. It was right before the pandemic. CDC was on it. They had their command center. It was like a, it was a, like a a dress rehearsal for COVID and they, and they, uh, they did it. They got the message out and deaths were going down. And then we had the whole COVID thing. And then everything gets screws up. Yeah, exactly. Did you see any of those cases in the ER? Um, I've met some patients and talked to some patients who had that. Um, and we probably misdiagnosed. Oh, interesting. You know, because okay. it's like ARDS, you know, who yeah. makes association with marijuana and vaping, right? right? And I, I bet even within the pandemic, there were like, you know, you know, COVID flu misdiagnosed, you know, because exactly. it'd be, you know, you have to put two and two together. And it's not that easy with um, to find, you know, somebody who's short of breath and connected to vaping. Right, exactly. Um, but it's it's hard. I think that's one of the, it's tricky um, talking to youth about vaping and then talking to them about how they could um, engage in other behaviors instead of vaping because A, it's so, it's just so widespread now, right? And they're doing it with like, amazing flavors. And so nothing smells like tobacco. I'm really excited that in California, we're stopping all flavored tobacco starting January 1st. So I think that will be possibly a huge move. Like, thank you, California. Um, You know, they won't give us safer consumption sites like New York has, but they'll give us no. Wait, wait, wait. But that's the same time. I actually had a different analogy. I I said that we, okay, we we want, we don't want the flavored tobacco. And yet we had the psychiatrists, emergency physicians, the OBGYN, the entire prevention community wanting warning labels on cannabis products that this could cause mental health problems. And that got shot down. It's like, oh, but you got rid of flavored uh, tobacco. Good exactly, for you. Exactly. Yes. And I mean, like, and I, you know, and, and we'll talk about cannabis in a second, but like the fact that these like dichotomies exist within the medical community is fascinating. How some people are like, no, 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 cannabis is fine. And like, how many kids have I seen with like cannabis induced psychosis that didn't resolve as quickly as I wanted it to? And there's so residual symptoms that these kids are struggling, youth and young adults are struggling with. Right. Um, so it's fascinating. But wow. I, I do hope that like now that we're limiting flavored tobacco, that may limit some of the vaping. I think, again, getting out there and getting the messages, but the messages have to come from within youth and young adults. And I feel like that's been harder because they're enjoying it. They're, you know, getting that nicotine rush. We know that nicotine can help with things like concentration. It can help with a little energy boost. We know it can help with appetite suppressants. So they're getting things. Anxiety, you know, for anxiety, short term. Totally. And then when they don't use it, their appetite goes up, their sleep is messed up and they're more anxious. Okay. And, you know, I think we, we live in a country that loves immediate gratification. None of us like, this is, I feel like why therapy with my patients is so tricky sometimes when I'm like, it will work, but we just, we have to sit with it. We have to sit doing the CBT or the DBT. We have to understand our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors and how they interact. And all my youth and young adults are like, I just don't want to feel like this right now, make it stop. And, you know, I think that mindset also contributes a lot to kind of like, how can I feel different emotionally very, very quickly? And substances are a 
are a beautifully chaotic way and dangerous way of doing that. Um, yeah, but cannabis, fascinating. I, it's it's always so interesting to, because I have I, a lot of my physician friends are like, I will totally recommend it. And these are non-psychiatrists. I will totally recommend it for like my patients with anxiety or with insomnia. And I'm like, are you doing kind of like careful histories to make sure there's no family history of like psychotic disorder or they, they're kind of like psychiatrically in a stable place where adding a psychoactive chemical can impact people's brains. And they're like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And I, you know, I, I think that a lot of people view it as a miracle drug. And I'm not saying that it hasn't helped a lot of people, but I've been on the darker side of it where I've seen, you know, 14 or 15 year olds who were smoking, you know, high potency THC, either like shatter or wax. And it, it's or not marijuana that they behave like they're on meth. Exactly. Totally. Right. They're, they're completely psychotic at that point. Yeah. And it's, I think people again, need to realize that like the marijuana of today and the cannabis of today is not what people were smoking in the seventies, eighties and nineties. Like THC back then was like eight percent. And now it's like upwards of like 80 to 90%. The amount of like psychoactive chemicals hitting your receptors in the brain is creating another kind of like tornado. So, Sid, after this show, I'm going to send you a document that was created by Isaac, who are the sponsors of this show. And yeah. we just have like basic education to physicians. Like if you're going to recommend it, and I'm not even like, that's alarming to me. Like yeah, yeah. physician friends are recommending it, but we have a lot of patients that are using it, whether we like it or not. But these are like the basic things you need to know. You need to know about pregnancy. You need to about, know about drug interactions. You know, you know, like yeah. there are 500 drug interactions before you could dare recommend a medication. Shouldn't you make sure that it's not, you know, interacting? I mean, if your patients on Coumadin and blood pressure medicine should not be getting, you should not be recommending cannabis. That's malpractice. Totally. And knowing like, if there's a family history of bipolar or a psychotic disorder in a youth and young adult, another you more sure malpractice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More malpractice. And it's like, <laughs> it's, it's so scary to me. And now that like, I mean, in LA there, every other block, we have like a dispensary and I go into them and I'm, I'm so fascinated. And I, I've been into one and I'm not going to name the name. Cause I feel like they'll come after me, but I was like, I'm, I'm just so curious to learn about how you talk to your patrons about side effects of cannabis and they do you know that they don't call them patrons they call them patients they they're pretending them, to be yeah, yeah, you're right totally right they call them oh, patients. Wow. And I'm like what did, is did you go happen? to medical school <laughs> it's so funny to me that they'll call them patients but like therapists will call their patients clients and right. it's like, I, I just think it's madness but they will say like there are hardly any side effects. Like it will help with your anxiety. It will help with your insomnia. It will help with your mood. It will enhance your concentration. I'm like, but like, do you say, do you screen for things? Like, have you ever had episodes of psychosis where you're not able to tell what's real or what's not? Or you have the experience of hearing or seeing things that other people may not. And they're like, no, that would scare them. And I'm like, right. And like, Every, everything we have in our body, everything we put in our body can have a side effect, right? Even a prescription medication can have a very bad side effect. And that is like the weight we carry as physicians, knowing these side effects exist and knowing we have to tell our patients about them. It's fascinating to me that like the cannabis industry doesn't have that same level. Right. That, and that, and it it's fascinating, but there's also aggravation. You can't, if you're going to do something recreationally, whatever, fine. That's Then, then call it recreational. But don't pretend... It's a medicine without treating it like a medicine. Get a yeah. history and vital signs and medications and allergies and a family history and do the things that I have to do as a doctor before I give you amoxicillin. Exactly. Oh my God. Could you imagine the uproar if that actually had to happen? I, I feel like they would quickly be like, they're no longer patients, they're clients, and we are providing a service. <laughs> but I mean, it, it just, it this is our profession as doctors. Why do right. you need to go to medical school? I could have just gotten a cannabis certificate and treated every ailment there is. Like, why bother? <laughs> I, I completely agree. Yeah, it, it really... Yeah. And it puts us in a position where then we have to oftentimes clean up messes when people are like, I didn't know a about the addicting potential of cannabis or B these side effects. And we see them in the emergency room where they're psychotic or, you know, scrumming and we have to deal with all the, the kind of like aftermath of it. Right. And they don't believe us because someone else told them something different. 
Exactly. They're like, we're not going to believe Dr. Lev. Like my cannabis dude told me this would never happen. This is clearly something else. Give me Xanax. Right. Right. And (laughs) right. Xanax, which is something else, you know, the number one benzos that people are addicted to and very difficult to, to treat and taper. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, we we're focusing so much on opioids right now, but I feel like our next um, substance epidemic will be benzos because I think they're handed out. It's, it's right there. It's right there. Right. And I think we're, you know, I I really hope that we start talking about them in a preventative way more so to talk about like how we deal with like national community, society, and cultural anxiety, um, rather than medicating it. Because again, like, you know, when we think about, when I think about psychiatric meds, especially with youth and young adults, I think about this is going to help you get to a place in therapy where you can access skills and strategies more effectively because the rest of your life is going to be dealing with stressful situations. And I don't want you to have to rely on a medication for the rest of your life to calm yourself down. I would love it if you would be able to kind of use a coping skill. And like, you know, I think our over-reliance on benzos is, um, is a reflection of that. And so we, when we teach safe prescribing, you know, we talk about opioid stewardship and right along next sentence is benzodiazepine stewardship. They go hand in hand. Yeah, you know, and and opioid tapering, benzo tapering. And the VA has really great tools for clinicians that we we promote. Totally true. The VA is actually impressively ahead of the game when it comes to like opioid and benzo use disorder and treatment. It's always fascinating to me because we think of the VA as like, we all people like, right. Exactly. Right. But on this field, they're on it. They really they're are doing a great totally job. Yeah. Do you find in the ER, a lot of patients now, are you seeing coming in for kind of like benzo withdrawals or needing benzo tapers or on the other side, ER docs prescribing benzos at higher rates or? No, I think as ER doctors, we're very good about, um, you know, limiting our prescriptions. Our prescriptions are like 10 pills of whatever it is yeah. that we're giving. We're not giving a lot. Uh, and and we definitely curb the opioid. Um, I don't think we have an opioid prescription problem anymore. The entire right. medical community is on it. Um, I don't think we're, you know, the candy land for benzos in the emergency department, um, but we're definitely the recipients yeah. of people who right. are getting them on the streets and from wherever else. Um, I totally agree. Definitely. Yeah, yeah and it, it's, it's, it's difficult because then, now, what do you have them? You don't want to send them out on that, you know, on the benzos because that'll make it worse. But if you don't, exactly. you can't. They can withdraw and have a seizure, and oh, it's God. it's difficult. And Xanax withdrawal has like it was like one of the scariest things for me, especially with adolescents, where they're you know buying bars on the street, and they're like, I think I take two bars, maybe I take eight bars, and I'm like, how many milligrams are these bars? And like, well, you know, we and have- is it is it really Xanax? It just, because it if you exactly. tested it, it could just be fentanyl. And totally, and yeah, uh, being close to the border in San Diego, it's um it's the equivalent that they're getting from Mexican the Mexico pharmacies. Exactly. So like, I don't know what you, you don't know what you're taking. That's the point. (laughs) We have this new trend in LA though, where a lot of our community-based organizations are buying um, drug testing equipment, which I love because then at least you can see what's what's in the supply. And I'm like, you know, know, xylazine hasn't hit LA as much. It hasn't hit San Diego, uh, mostly East Coast. We had it like two years ago, but now, yeah, I love that's great information. Ketamine is out there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, But it's so great to see like what, what's in the water and like (laughs) what's coming out. So then we know again, as like practitioners, how to prevent and how to have these conversations and then from public health, promote an awareness of it. How how do you take that information and give it to the medical community? That's a really good question. I haven't had to do it yet. The way I envision it though, is by the, the way that we have drug testing machines set up now, our agencies are kind of in different areas of LA. So we'd be able to see kind of like hot spots for increases in fentanyl, introductions of xylazine, more ketamine, or, you know, if there's more kind of like any other medication in them, what I would do is like, we in LA County, we have these things called health alerts that we can send out through public health. And I think those go out to other medical practitioners. And when we put them on like different levels of alert, that would be like the first way I would do it. And then the second way, when I I think we're coming to rely a lot on the journalistic community to get things out there. So getting spots on TV, getting spots in, um, you know, local newspapers or getting those people to kind of be, again, champions at getting the information out there. And then eventually, God, I would love it if like 
LA County Public Health or all these California Public Health and nationally had like really cool, fun TikToks that weren't lame mm. to get information out there. Because again, I think if we can come up with like, and I know it sounds weird, but like a gimmicky way to get the community to to hear a message and to remember it, I actually think that would be really. So you're you're talking about messaging to the public and then uh, yeah. messaging to the medical community. Yes. To know, right. So I. I would love it because, you know, every other day I'm getting an alert from public health and sometimes it just makes me roll my eyes. I'm like, RSV is high. It's like, yeah, yeah, thank you very much. I've known that now for several months and uh, yeah. it's flu season. Thank you very much. And I'm getting all these alerts from them. And I was thinking the least you could do is send an alert once a year to the medical community. Like this is what's out there in the drug system right now. We're seeing this yeah. much ketamine, no xylazine, you know, we're seeing all these different, po- this is what we're seeing. And actually I have a report like that, yeah. that I'm trying to convince our public health to um, share with the medical community. Oh, I think that's um, because we, we share, um, and I don't know, I'm having trouble convincing them, but I'll be persistent, but we share all the RSV rates, you know, for God's yeah. sakes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. And I, I mean, like, and I, and I why don't you think they, sh- the doctors should know about the ketamine? No, right. I think, and I think it goes back to just like, again, the stigma around addiction and substance and us talking about it is still a really uncomfortable maybe. And maybe, maybe or maybe really they think doctors don't need to know that. The doctors don't think they want to know that, but once you, they have that information, what, do they, do they right? care about RSV? You're making an assumption that they want to know about the RSV cases. And and they don't want to know about substance versus like, I think all of my friends in the ER are always asking me, they're like, is there xylosine in LA yet? And I'm like, we don't know. We're going to test stuff and we'll let you know, but we want you to know that because your treatment is going to change for like how, how you manage overdoses and stuff. So I would, yeah, I would recommend being persistent. And if there's anything, but you know, we can help you with, we'd be happy to push. Yeah. I'm going to, okay. I got something else to share with you because if you say, oh, well, you know, Dr. Puri said that he, they're going to think about that in LA County and, and that'll that'll carry some weight. That'll make my bosses really happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk fentanyl. And you wanted to like methadone, buprenorphine. Should we X yeah. the X waiver? Oh God, I think we should X the X waiver. And X I think that X waiver. X it. Biden's on his way to hopefully doing it, making it actual law, which I think is, it's so important because it's so fascinating to me that we don't need another waiver to like write oxys, Percocets, morphine, dilated, but we need this like, silly waiver to write buprenorphine, which no one's going to overdose on. Yeah. Um, so that's like my little soapbox on that. But I do think what we're seeing in the community is fascinating. So we're knowing that like now that fentanyl's out there and a lot of our you know opioid users are now moving towards fentanyl, when they're at a moment where they're like, let me figure out if this is still what I want to do, or from a harm reduction standpoint, how do we transition to medications for opioid use disorder? Transitioning them to buprenorphine has been a little tricky because we know that fentanyl is lipophilic, it hangs out, it has a very high affinity for the mu receptor, a little higher than buprenorphine. So getting someone on buprenorphine when they're using Fent can be really tricky. And I'm a huge fan of macro dosing. And so, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, on either side of the coast like to do micro dose and really kind of like introduce buprenorphine in a very small, deliberate way. So it doesn't interact and it doesn't put people in a precipitated withdrawal. I will be honest with my patients who I'm treating, you know, who are who are experiencing homelessness or who I'm seeing in the ER, who are at high risk for things like relapse, overdose, and death. And I'm like, I'm going to put you on something that I know is going to be protective. The way that I'll do it, I mean, I just like massively overdose them on bup, or not overdose them, but I give them a much higher dose of bup. So I'll start regularly with like 24 or 32 to try to occupy as much of the receptor as I can to Mm -hmm. stave off a precipitated withdrawal. And if they're in the ER, I will be like, stick with me. If this is uncomfortable, I want you to tell me, I will keep giving you bup to combat the precipitated withdrawal. I will throw on something like Ativan or Gabapentin or Hydroxazine to make you feel less anxious. on top of- Very rarely. Like I'll give them like half a milligram or a milligram of Ativan, but I'll push like Gabapentin or Hydroxazine more to just like take the edge off so we can get them on that dose. But when we're doing, you know, when we're starting a bup in the community, what we're hearing is that our community members are more like, you put me through withdrawal and I don't want to do that. And so that's kind of like 
the word on the street. And so they're like, mm-hmm. methadone doesn't put you in a withdrawal and it's safer in the long run. And people are more likely to go back to using methadone than they are to buprenorphine. And I think it's a real battle because we see this push and, you know, Dr. Volkow is now, um, you know, rightly talking about deregulating methadone, which I think is is wonderful. And I think that goes in the direction of- Wait, 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 wait. Ugh, we got so much going on here. Okay. So macrodosing versus microdosing. I get it. You're going to do that. But deregulating methadone, when if we remember in 2011, that was the number one drug people were dying from because the medical community was providing methadone. How could we go back to that? I mean, I think we have to go back to like education. Again, I I don't think- We had education then. The education was give methadone. It was like like treating asthma. This is your short acting inhaler for asthma and here's your long acting inhaler. So, so, and the same with pain, here's your short acting. That was the education I received. Yeah. And then we looked at people who died, the number one drug to die of by itself, that was a prescription, not illicit. Prescription was methadone. Yeah. Okay. And that changed quickly. Um, but I, you're we, right. I don't want to go back. We said, oh, no, direction. did we say that? Never mind. Don't but give me like, <laughs> But in the age of fentanyl, if people are overdosing and they don't feel like bup is going to work for them, or if they've heard it's not going to, and we have physicians who aren't macrodosing or going on high enough doses quickly enough to stave off a precipitated withdrawal, how do we balance out making sure they have options to... to I think if you're going to allow, there are a select group of doctors who are addiction specialists who want that tool and it should be available to them. Correct. Yes. I mean, it's it's like getting like this fancy schmancy chemotherapy for these, you know, for these oncologists who are treating like these, you know, resistant cancers, you know, fine. They should have that, but I, I don't need to have that. I agree. I agree that it has to be with a specialized group of physicians who are working with the higher risk population that for some reason, maybe isn't working. There has to be controls. We can't, we just came out of this opioid prescription epidemic. We can't open up the floodgates and say, okay, now everybody should have this. (laughs) I agree. I feel like deregulation with an understanding that it would have to happen in a really controlled way is the way to go. But I do think we need to start thinking about if methadone needs to be offered in an easier way to patients who are at super high risk. Um, you know, in, in Skid Row in Los Angeles, we're seeing a lot of the patients there being like, I don't want to do bup. I'm going to keep doing FENT until I can get methadone. We don't have a way to get methadone to Skid Row right now. So a lot of patients have to go out of Skid Row to get methadone, which they're very- well, You could do, just like you do your mobile units for buprenorphine, you could do mobile units for methadone. So we're talking about things like mobile units, how we can do like a methadone window in one of the clinics there. So this is all- in conversation, this all also takes a lot of money, um, which like- But we can't forget how deadly methadone is. I mean, we had one of our doctors who gave six pills, six pills to a guy who came in begging, please, 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 please. It was for back pain. It wasn't for opiate use disorder. And and this kid died and our doctor was sued. Um, and it's a, it's a very long half-life. If someone overdoses on methadone, they get admitted to the hospital because it's a, they need 24-hour observation. It's not like overdosing on fentanyl where you can wake up and be okay. Yeah. And the other thing to, to think about methadone, I'm not, again, I'm not advocating for everyone to be on methadone, but I'm saying we need to have wider range of options for yes, our patients. You need more the thing, that I, the thing that I also get concerned about with methadone is a lot of our patients on methadone are still using methamphetamine. And we know that like fentanyl has infiltrated the methamphetamine, especially Mm -hmm. like, you know, on the West coast. And so putting someone on methadone who's still using methamphetamine, methadone plus fentanyl is an even deadlier overdose. And so it's real, like, we have to be very careful on who we think methadone would be good for. Um, But again, I think it's the the door to that conversation needs to be open to figure out how are the other ways we can combat fentanyl use Yeah, and offer services. Um, that is great. We can keep talking. Actually, maybe I should, one more area of controversy, just because you mentioned it, I can't let it go. We've agreed on a lot of things here, but uh, this is a part where, oh, Dr. Lev is going to disagree with her guest. Get out the popcorn. Yeah, yeah um, do it. I love that. <laughs> um, you were ta- so, talking about legislation that we we the governor did not sign for safe consumption sites like in New York. And yeah. I don't want anyone to think that, you know, I'm very... Um, you know, there, there's a p- part, a small segment of the population who need harm reduction because they're resistant to treatment and they need 
compassionate, I, which somehow, but I don't see how every day I see patients in the emergency department who have no place to go and I throw them to the street and they're crying, tears, please, please send me to rehab. And I have nothing for them. Well, there's a group of people who are, there's no, you could use drugs anywhere. They don't need more funding of where you could use drugs safely. We need more funding um, to get people who want a safe place to stop using drugs. They don't need more money to where they could use drugs safely. To use drugs safely, we need, you know, and I'm in favor of needle exchange and um, naloxone, testing strips for people who don't want to use fentanyl. People who want to use fentanyl don't, you know, don't necessarily need that. But but I I was actually happy that the governor did not sign that because I didn't think that that was the right place to put very expensive resources when they are needed more upstream. So what's so interesting about that is 95% of the people with substance use disorders, though, aren't in treatment. And it's not because they can't access it. It's because they don't want to. Yeah, And so knowing that, and this is again, why harm reduction is so important, right? Because that is meeting where people where the meeting people where they are, allowing them to kind of dictate care, understanding that they have autonomy and control over the decisions they make, including their relationship to a substance. I argue that safe consumption sites will offer our highest risk population for overdose and death spaces where they can use safely decreasing rates of things like HIV, hepatitis C, but also then be linked into services if and when they're ready. And those services may not necessarily be residential, but maybe it's getting on you know medications for addiction treatment. Maybe it's being linked to a case manager who can help them with things like housing or the other like social determinants of health that are impacting their But you don't need to invest in brick and mortar because that actually does the opposite of what you said, meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. Meeting but people where they are them. is wherever they are. Yeah. You're putting a building and say, don't come there, come right. to me. Um, th- well, that's not meeting them where they are. And but it, but we, okay, the way that I envision safe consumption sites are yeah. actually in community-based organizations that are already offering harm reduction services. So this would carve out spaces within those already established brick and mortar places. And this is kind of how we saw success in New York. Um, but and, and also measuring success, you have to measure. See how I I I listen to the people in New York. Yeah. And looked at their data of how they're measuring success. They're measuring success by we reversed X amount of overdoses with Narcan. Right. And their second measure of success is we took out so many tons and trucks full of, you know, dirty needles and saved the environment that way. Right. That would happen anyway, because they're not open 24-7, you know. So yeah. And 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 frankly, I would say if you look at what's happening outside that brick and mortar. Yeah. In the community, you're probably having even more naloxone saves than they are. But I and, mean, and you're have and the needle exchanges are disposing of that um, of that way. So you're and they're not measuring how many people did you help with treatment. But they are. I mean, the way that we were envisioning it in California, we were like the data, and and I can say this because I was actually creating the application for the safe consumption sites in LA County. We were looking at kind of the number of patients linked to psychosocial services, to housing, case management, MAT, all of those things are are data points that we want to make sure we we look at. We want to look at the number then of like public overdoses that were reduced because of this. We want to look at but like why are you doing that safety? anyway? Why can't you do that anyway? And we, I would argue that you are already doing that now in LA we, County. We and we're totally doing are, but we're doing it in a way where we're still seeing public injection, possible overdoses and deaths in spaces that are like parks or on the streets of Skid Row and giving people a chance to have reversals are keeping them alive. And if they're alive, then they can get into treatment. If they're dead, then that's a person we've lost. And like, so that's why I do think the safe consumption sites will keep people alive. The ones who are really vulnerable and very, you know, high risk for overdoses and deaths, those are the population that it caters to. Like it shouldn't be catering to like- I don't don't see how you're spending, you know, you're in public health. You have a budget, yeah. right? Right. You're going to spend $2 million way downstream on this population uh-huh. that, frankly, you're already spending a lot of resources on, and you can make your resources that you already have better. And while you have nothing, nothing on upstream for people who 
who are, okay, I'm ready to quit. I just overdosed. Where can I go to we, be safe? So many beds open. Like we, those, those, those 95% of people who don't want treatment aren't go, not going to treatment because there's not beds. They're going because they don't want to. So we have no beds. Are you telling me in LA, can, can I send you my patients in San Diego? <laughs> if they have LA County Medi-Cal, you can send us them. But <laughs> I cannot, I have no place to send them. So I think that's, and that maybe is a county thing, but we have options in LA County where they may not be able to get in that day, but they can get in the following day. You know, I think COVID has messed up kind of like the, the flow because of quarantine issues, but the, the 5% who want treatment can get various levels of treatment. So I All do right. think that's there. So I, I don't see that in San Diego. So maybe that's, that's unfortunate. And then I think we should help you combat that by going to your public health officials and trying to work with them and making sure that they're contracting enough with treatment agencies to reserve beds for medical patients um, to make sure that they are options. Or yeah, and they're they're like always there is always full our hospital actually well you in LA have a public hospital yes. um which we don't have in San Diego County. We don't have a, a public hospital. Um they're all private and then even our private hospital scripts buys five mm-hmm. beds and they're always full. Oh no. Yeah. So it's like I send people to the streets. It's heartbreaking. It breaks my heart. And they're like crying, please don't discharge me. And like, what am I going to do? Where do I send you? So do you, do you have like a sobering center in San Diego that lets people kind of like, we do, we, we have that. Um, and does that work with case management or is that like flow with other, if they stay long like, enough. Okay. But so I've had stay long enough. Um, they're, they're offered if they continued, but I, I had a guy in the middle of the night, um, he overdosed multiple times and I, my heart broke. I said, if I send him out, he's just going to die. And Wait. I pulled strings and I found him a place to go. Um, and then it was like, I'm going to get a mat. I'd rather go to my friend's, uh, you know, couch. And, and even after I made all these arrangements, pulled all these strings and he just like bolted. He didn't want it. Okay. But you sent him out with like medications. But but I have other out. patients. Yeah. I think he just he just left. Yeah, I wanted to send him out with medications. And I had it all set up for him to go and get all that and he just didn't he's a guy who he's didn't want it. Okay. That I made a bed available. But there's yeah. plenty of people who I send out who want something and there's we do not have. I mean, I do think then then I then I wonder why there aren't more more things in the legislation about increasing access to then treatment. Like if the, because the, the governor essentially pushed SB 57 back on the counties saying, we want you to do some sort of feasibility study to see if this would be appropriate or effective in your county. And now that's like what, you know, we're considering in LA County, but then maybe he should have been like, in addition to that, I hear that 95% of the people who aren't getting, who are, you know, with substance use disorders, aren't getting treatment. Let's invest more money in understanding why is it? By the way, the the data on the 10% is a little bit, I mean, it's, it's a huge gap. So like, it doesn't matter if it's 10% or 20%, it's a huge gap, but, but the data is 10% of the people who have a substance disorder um, seek treatment at a treatment facility. They, there may be others who are doing it through a, you know, non-medical ways. Right, right, exactly. You know, twelve yeah. step or something else. So for sure. So right. that's that's very true in the data. But this is the data that we're running on, and this is the data that we're like using to try to get funding and figure out yes. where money can go to help. Yes. Yes. Um, so if there's ways in which we need to like either build more treatment facilities, but if we build them, will they come? Are we building them to the point where they're like they look nice, right? I think a lot of the treatment facilities are kind of run down. Maybe like you just said, sleeping on a mat is not a really um, comfortable place for someone mm-hmm. to like manage things like withdrawal or post-acute withdrawal and all of those really uncomfortable things that go with it. Yeah. So is it about building that up? Is that going to make it more effective for them to stay in treatment? Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. We need an all-encompassing approach. But if I think if I have a limited amount of money, um, you know, and the ones in New York, they're not even open 24-7. So you can like save those people during those business hours just for them to die on the off hours versus, you know, just bringing to Skid Row, you know, uh, naloxone vending machines and and treatment and, you know, and and, and making a mobile, trying to put naloxone in the water down there um, to make it easily accessible. But, you know, even then, um, people are so if that's hard for you now, then you think that building a building with a nurse to watch you overdose is going to work? Like well, because the nurse make... is going to reverse the overdose and the nurse then will maybe have only a for the people alive. who show up there and only right. for the, you know, you know, nine to five hours, you're, yeah. you're, you're not going upstream 
you're not investing that money upstream. Um, it's hard, like, I mean, investing upstream, but also investing further, even upstream to the, with like the youth and young adults to like prevent them said. from that happening. Yes, it's I like, love that. And I see that yeah. you definitely, you definitely have that perspective. A lot of uh, doctors working in addiction don't see that. Yeah. They have, they see only like, well, I'm into treatment or I'm into harm right. reduction or even people who are in prevention, just into prevention. I see that you work in all these fields. So you definitely see that. So, and it's hard though. Cause you're like, I want all of these things to change and I want them to change right now. And it's like, where do you, where do you focus your efforts? And we're all, you know, we all have our passion projects and, you know, I still feel like even having, you know, maybe the safe consumption site in LA County was open from like 10 PM to 6 AM instead of like business hours to capture the the most vulnerable patients who are using at night and using alone. There's ways in which we could, we could configure it. And, but I do hear the argument that it's, it's not doing enough and it's not really hitting the, hitting the root cause, or it's not getting people to a place where they can reach their goals, which may be becoming, you know, permanently housed and engaging in like vocational um, endeavors and things like that. So I I hear all of that, but I do think we need to do something different, right? What we're doing right now isn't working. Um, That's true. We we need to do more. And I want to thank you for for doing that. I think Los Angeles County is very, very fortunate uh, to have you very passionate about that and always thinking about that. Um, this has been a, a fun, lively conversation. <laughs> I want to say thank you to Janet for your question and your work on Safe Launch. Janet Rouse and Ron Cuff use their airplane as a center to promote drug use prevention. Um, and they use one choice and wind beneath our wings as a, a message for, um, for youth. Uh, kids and young as adults. And thank you to you, uh, Dr. Sid Puri, for joining us, teaching us, sharing your passions, and doing great work for LA County. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.